Welcome to the IFI podcast from the Irish Film Institute. I'm Stephen Boylan, and this is the latest in our short season of IFI podcasts we're making available during the current COVID-19 outbreak. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can contact us on Facebook and Instagram at Irish Film Institute or on Twitter at IFI underscore dub. One of the most beloved events in the Irish cultural calendar is the annual Bloomsday celebration, which takes place on June 16th every year to mark the journey across Dublin taken by the fictional Leopold Bloom in James Joyce's Ulysses. Joyce remains one of Ireland's most revered writers and scholars, and our fascination with his work remains undiminished. As with all best-selling writers, numerous filmmakers have brought both Joyce's work and representations of Joyce himself to the big screen. To coincide with this year's Bloomsday celebrations, the IFI is releasing a number of short films on the IFI player that look at both Ulysses and Dublin's relationship with the great writer. Joining me to look at Joyce on film and this new collection of shorts is IFI head of Irish film programming, Sineva Flynn. Sineva, before we dig into Ulysses and the films of Joyce's work, I suppose we should start with the hugely profound connection that James Joyce has to Irish cinematic history. Uh, certainly, yeah. I mean, we, when we think of Joyce, we think Joyce and cinema, we think of work that has been adapted from Joyce's writing. We think, as you say, of representations of Joyce, but we also think about Joyce as cineast and somebody who was very interested in the art of cinema. But in 1909, Joyce took it upon himself to draw in a three Italian businessmen from Trieste, where Joyce was living. Dublin was a city of half a million inhabitants. So he brought the three Italian businessmen on board and together they opened the Volta Cinema in Mary Street in December 1909. And it's incredible to think that, you know, we think of the Lumiere brothers in that first film of the train entering the station. And it was only 14 years, which back in those days was kind of a very short period of time for that kind of development of technology. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the fact is that Dubliners would have been seeing moving images since 1896, 1897, when the first films were shown in the Olympia, what is now the Olympia Theatre in Dame Street. It was then uh, Dan Lowry's Theatre of the Varieties. So they had been exposed to moving images uh, of foreign parts, but also of themselves. So they had seen the Lumiere brothers. Uh, Alexander Promio was an agent of the Lumiere and he had been filming Dublin and Belfast uh, in 1897. And we later then had the Mitchell and Kenyon team. So a team of commercial cinematographers who would come in and film the people of particular cities at work and at play. And they would then show these films in local screening halls and they would be guaranteed an audience because people appearing in the films would come and see themselves. So this had been going on in Dublin. There were screening halls in the Rotunda, uh, in Rathmines, in various places around the city. But in those early days, the, the films would have been very short. They would have only been a couple of moments long. So the film programs would have been part of variety shows. They would have been tucked in among live cabaret and music and theatre and so on. But it wasn't until we're into the 1909, 1910s and teens that you begin to get films of sufficient duration uh, to comprise full film programmes. So when the Volta opens in 1909, the film programmes were running for 30 to 40 minutes. And there were programmes running from about five o'clock in the evening to 10 o'clock during weekdays. And at the weekends, there were matinees that would run in the afternoons and then on into the evening. But, you know, people were getting fairly substantial shows of 45 minutes or so of these, you know, a very varied range of films that ran for about eight, nine minutes apiece. 
And what kind of audiences would you have had in the Volta initially? Would they have been very middle class audiences or would it very much a, a working class entertainment? Uh, well, from what I read, um, this wouldn't be my own primary research, of course, but uh, a gentleman called Luke McKernan uh, is a great expert on the Volta, um, as is Dennis Condon. So their research would indicate that cinema became the art form of the working classes. It was, you know, poor man's theatre. Um, so the provisions within cinemas were often pretty basic. In the Volta, there were benches and some kitchen chairs, I believe, up at the front for, for a few pennies more. So the audiences were working class proletariat um, and you know it, it arguably democratized access to the arts and what people were seeing then were actualities you know films that documented real events as they happened whether it was in Dublin or further afield they would have been seeing seeing historical dramas short comedies the kind of silent incidental little pieces that you may be a little bit familiar with they were accompanied in the Volta by a little string orchestra so the films weren't screening silently of course they had they had musical accompaniment it would appear that the bulk of the programs in the Volta, uh, certainly in the early days, were coming directly from the collaborators in Trieste in Italy. So a lot of the films coming in were French, Italian, there was some Danish work, very few American films, very few British films. So the, the films were coming in with these foreign, foreign language intertitles. And to deal with this, the cinema owners circulated uh, handbills that would have the intertitles translated. So it wasn't ideal, particularly perhaps with audiences who weren't 100% literate. Uh, so this was kind of a problem, a teething problem with the Volta. The fact is that James Joyce, although he's associated with the Volta and gets great credit for opening the cinema. He leaves Dublin on the 2nd of January 1910, so he really was only with the cinema for a couple of weeks. He had been there for months in advance. He'd come over in October, worked away to find staff, to kit out the cinema, uh, to train up projectionists. But really, once the cinema opened, he only stays for a very short time. And because of these kinds of teaching problems, the, the, the content that they were screening, the fact that the staff that Joyce leaves behind were Italian-speaking, probably not familiar with Dublin audiences. They limped along for another few months. But in fact, in April 1910, the, the, the venture closed and the project was sold on to the British Provincial Cinema Cinematograph Theatre. So the fact is the cinema stayed operating till 1948, but the early days where Joyce was in place had, had their problems. There are records of the first five months of the Volta's screening bills, and this Luke McKernan, who began work on this when he was in the British Film Institute, has curated a programme of work from the Volta that um, has been screened at various uh, sites to cinema lovers, to Joyce's and so on. We, in fact, hosted a programme of this work in 2004, uh, which was part of the Rejoice season. So when there was all of that terrific centenary celebration of Ulysses, uh, we were very pleased to host a screening of the work that is screened in the Volta. For you, what, is, what do you think is the biggest difficulty filmmakers face when looking to adapt Joyce's works? 
I think when you look at the, the various adaptations of whether it's Ulysses or Finnegan's Wake or Portrait of the Artist, with each of them, I think the challenge is whether to attempt to be absolutely faithful to the original text. I mean, that would prove impossible. The texts are so dense, they're, they meander, there's so much interior happenings within a, any of the characters. To translate that to the big screen is a challenge. Now, it varies from film to film. Some choose to extract certain passages that they can successfully reconstruct. Others would would take the tone and the playfulness of a work and try and recreate that on screen. Some see feature films as kind of a reaction to the texts rather than a, a very religious translation of the texts. But where the chronology of any of the films is maybe not crystal clear or you know where, where the narrative may not be linear that's going to be a challenge to, to filmmakers is their duty to Joyce or to audience and as I say sometimes it works sometimes you know it, it, it can serve to bewilder audiences even further uh, but I think with all of the work uh, I mean my sense of these films is they they pay homage to Joyce they can serve as a, a bluffer's guide to the, the literary works for people who may not yet have have read them and I think there's an awful lot of folks who haven't read them so I think they each serve a purpose and they're they're all worth watching very often the films are very interesting snapshots of uh, the period in which they are made and this would be true of Strix Ulysses from 1967, where he chooses not to, to, to recreate the period of 1904, but instead he sets it in a contemporary Dublin. And so we have this interesting representation of Dublin at that time. With Portrait of the Artist, he, he does make a period piece, but again, you know, we see, we see Dublin in 1977, so that in itself is valuable. Um, I think each, each has undoubted value in popularizing or making more accessible uh, Joyce's work. You mentioned Joseph Strick's 1967 adaptation of Ulysses, which was nominated for an Oscar for adapted screenplay, but was also banned in Ireland due to it being subversive to public morality. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of the work, there's Strick's 1967 film, there would be uh, Sean Walsh's Bloom from 2003, James Joyce's Women from 1985. So each of these, they don't shy away from the carnality, the, the sexuality, and that would have, or it was deemed to have been uh, problematic by the censor. It would be disingenuous to excise the sexuality altogether, you know, so inevitably that was going to be a problem uh, if those aspects of the texts were to appear on screen, it was going to run up against the censor. For you, Sineva, what have been the most successful adaptations of Joyce's work? For me, John Huston's The Dead from 1987 is a film that bears watching and re-watching. It, it's pretty much perfect, isn't it? I mean, it, I, I think it's it's... Faithfulness to Joyce's novella is remarkable. Its economy, uh, in many respects, it's, it's cinematically quite a modest film. You know, it's set within one location. There is an ensemble cast who arrive and they are located there in that place, uh, delivering the lines from the novella. Each of the characters are perfectly portrayed by the, the really fine cast of Irish actors from Dublin in the 1980s. There are performances there that are so poignant, whether it's Donald McCann or Mary Keane or Donald Donnelly. Actors at the peak of their game, and, and there, they, they, there are these wonderful performances captured 
by Houston. His relationship with Angelica, of course, his daughter is, is starring in the film. His son co-produced it. There, there's a great sense of intimacy uh, and family in the film. And I think it perfectly honours Joyce and opens up Joyce to cinema goers. It's probably the most accessible, more accessible to readers than Ulysses or, or Finnegan's Wake would be. But, but for me, The Dead is probably the most successful adaptation. The thing that's really striking about The Dead as well is that the, the entire film is set in one house until the coda at the end where you have that beautiful scene between Donald McCann and Jackie Houston in the Gresham Hotel, which is very different to the rest of the film, but is, it perfectly captures the sadness and the poetry of the story. It does. And those vivid scenes of snow falling in general all, all over Ireland. Uh, I mean, I believe they weren't actually shot in Ireland, but uh, <laughs> you wouldn't for a moment think that. And certainly the seamlessness of the, you know, the fact that it was all shot in a studio in L.A., except for those moments of the, the, the Liffey and the, the trip along the Liffey. But yes, totally, that is so beautiful. The, the, the coolness and the blueness of those closing sequences compared to the warmth and all the lovely ambers of, of the dinner party sequences. It's, it's such a fine, such a fine piece. In episode six of the podcast, Alva Smith made reference to Pat Murphy's film Nora, which finally saw Joyce himself portrayed on screen. Pat Murphy's Nora is an extraordinarily lush and beautiful film and her reclaiming Nora from relative obscurity and allowing us to see her role in inspiring and supporting Joyce is really fascinating. Her casting of Ewan McGregor as Joyce, I, I think was very clever. I think he's, you know, we, we have a great sense of Joyce and his desires and his earthiness. It is fascinating how Pat Murphy uh, represents Nora and her sexuality. And in fact, I remember a film, Ireland Poll, where Nora was voted uh, the most sexy Irish film ever made. And, you know, I think this is interesting that a woman's sexuality is to the fore here. And uh, Susan Lynch certainly represents that with great bravery and, and gutsiness. So Nora is, is a fascinating part of this whole discussion of Joyce and film. There are other films made by women that explore Joyce's women. And I suppose Anya Stapleton's work, uh, which we've seen in recent years, Medicated Milk and Horrible Creature, uh, her two documentary explorations of Lucia Joyce and her relationship with her father, James, uh, her experience of incarceration in San Natoria uh, throughout Europe and in Ireland and her relationship with dance are, are fascinating and Anya has chosen to explore this through two feature-length films. Sneva Bloomsday of course takes place over the course of one day June 16th 1904 um, and I'm guessing a number of films have taken Ulysses and that that day-long journey through Dublin as a trope for their own storytelling. It's quite easy to think of many Dublin films as being inspired by Joyce. Dublin films are films that are, take place over the course of a day, um, or city films. You know, frequently you see these films and there's kind of a lingering sense of, what is that reminiscent of? And I mean, films like Before Sunrise and Before Sunset, Before Sunrise, when I began thinking about this or researching this, uh, I hadn't actually realised that it is set on the 16th of June, not in 1904, obviously, but uh, so Richard Linklater's film about a couple who meet uh, on a train. And it, this is one of the most formative and significant encounters in their lives and happens on June 
16th. And again, then in the follow-up and before Sunset, which was made in 2004 by Linklater, and the pair meet when the Ethan Hawke Hawk character is reading uh, his latest book in Shakespeare and Company in Paris, um, which is, of course, the, the company that published Ulysses in 1922. So there's an interesting link there. In terms of Dublin films, I thought of Out of Here, Donald Foreman's film uh, made about a young man who returns to Dublin and it's his experience reconnecting with his friends as he meanders through Dublin and certainly for me that had a, a Ulyssian flavour. Dublin Old School, Dave Tynan's film made in 2018 about a young man who's trying to, to reconnect with his brother who is uh, who's having problems with drug abuse. Uh, again, the, the, our protagonist wanders through a Dublin encountering friends and, and being affected by the various locations he finds himself in. Um, and this is a film, Dublin Old School, that is, you know, infused with lots of, is it house music? Possibly. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's drugs and it's rave and it's, it's house music. But also there's, there's a very kind of lyrical, poetic sense to the words within it. And certainly I think Dave Tynan has undoubtedly been influenced by Joyce. He went on, of course, to make uh, the film Wait the Streets that can be seen in the Museum of Literature, Ireland. Uh, the other films that, that crossed my mind in relation to Dublin, Adam and Paul, of course, is undoubtedly Ulyssian in the, the focus on the, the two characters, the, the strength of their friendship, the significance of all of the people and all of the events that happen to them during the course of the day, whether it's, it's funerals or muggings or you know, looking for the next hit, there is just that sense of journey and odyssey through a city. So, you know, it too, I think, mirrors the shape of Ulysses and the, the poeticism of it too. I have great fondness for uh, a film called A Second of June, directed by uh, the late Frank Stapleton. So this is a film made on the day that Ronald Reagan came to Dublin, uh, 2nd of June, 1984. And it follows a young woman, for a change, as she wanders through Dublin uh, quietly, meeting street sellers. She uh, encounters protest march. But there's a terrific sense of you know a, a street level view of Dublin and Dublin city and Dublin inner city streets in 1984 and just the mood of wandering and being kind of quietly receptive to the city is is marvelous you know it's a, a terrific snapshot of the city at that time to coincide with this year's Bloomsday, the iFi is releasing a number of short films onto the iFi player related to Joyce and Bloomsday tell us a little bit about what you can find as part of that collection we have some lovely and varied little short films that honour Joyce in one way or another. The earliest one that we're going to show is a film uh, from the Arak Aaron Newsreel series. And it was one filmed in June on Bloomsday 1962. And it marks the occasion of the opening of the James Joyce Museum in Sandy Cove. So we see the museum within the Martello Tower, which had been purchased by Michael Scott, the architect. Michael was the architect of the beautiful White House that you see at the 40 foot there beside Martello Tower. And he buys the Martello Tower. And with his chums, John Ryan and Flann O'Brien and Anthony Cronin, there was a number of literary types who were keen to honour Joyce in his home city. So they opened the Joyce Tower in the little newsreel, which is in Irish, as all of the Gaelan newsreels were. We see Sylvia Beach, uh, Joyce's publisher from Shakespeare and Company, and she is guest of honour and she opens the museum. In this short little piece, it's, it's 
a mere minute or two, but we, within it, we see the opening, we see Sylvia Beach and Michael Scott, and they take a wee wander along the route of uh, some of Ulysses' locations. So we're in Eccles Street and we're in Mulligan's Pub. It's a, it's a lovely little piece. We have an animation. Okay, for those of you who are really lazy and want your Ulysses in an incredibly digestible three minutes, you can watch Ulysses. A hand-drawn animation by Timothy Booth. Uh, he made this in 1998. It was part of the film board's framework series. And in it, we see James Joyce grappling with this tome. So it's about Joyce. It's about his difficulty in finishing his novel, Ulysses. But it's also about Ulysses. So we see Joyce, but we also see a Leopold Bloom character wandering around the city uh, on Sandyman Strand and so on. It's it's great fun and it's it's creatively very interesting. We'll show a wee documentary called James Joyce's Dublin. It's a film made by Ulick O'Connor, who was a biographer of Joyce, uh, and he wrote about other Irish literary icons as well. Ulick wrote James Joyce's Dublin. His brother, Mike O'Connor, directs, and it incorporates Joyce's writing and looks at Dublin. It explores Dublin in the period before Joyce leaves for Europe in 1904. So it's a a very early revisiting of Dublin at that time. We also include in this collection a film called Pitch and Pot with Beckett and Joyce, which may surprise some people to learn that it was written and directed by Donald Clark, uh, the Irish Times film reviewer. It's, it's an irreverent little piece that presents James Joyce and Samuel Beckett, played by Martin Murphy and Arthur Reardon, respectively. And it shows us the pair of them playing a game of pitch and put on a windswept golf course in Zurich in 1922. Now, we know that Joyce and Beckett were friends. They certainly had a strong relationship. But Donald has the audacity to pitch the pair of them on this golf course in Zurich and to parody their characters. Uh, We see James Joyce being incredibly intense and frustrated by the the, the game and meanwhile Samuel Beckett is being deeply reflective and obscure in his behaviour. It's it's, it's a really fun piece and you watch it and you imagine that you have a greater insight into the characters that you might have had before. And finally we have a final documentary made by Kieran Hickey in 1968. Faithful Departed is a documentary based exclusively on the photographs of Robert French whose work is preserved within the Lawrence Collection in the National Library. And the images take us from Joyce's birthplace and his childhood in Dorky through the streets of Dublin and many locations that would have appeared in Ulysses. And it, combined with a beautiful piano score, really evokes the period and, and the feel and the texture of the period in a way that's particularly successful for course of this short documentary. Well, it certainly is a fascinating and very diverse selection of films. The five films of the Bloomsday Collection are now available to view on the iFi Player at iFiPlayer.ie or through the iFi Player suite of apps. Snevo Flynn, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Last September saw the opening of Dublin's latest attraction, the highly anticipated Museum of Literature Ireland featuring exhibitions on Kate O'Brien, the literary connection between Dublin and international cities, and the first ever copy of Joyce's Ulysses, the museum also features a specially commissioned film by director Alan Gilsonen. Ulysses' film is a cinematic, richly visual and stimulating personal interpretation of the book, and Alan joins us now on the podcast. Alan, tell us a little bit about how the project came about. 
Well, it kind of had a strange, strange beginning, Stephen. I was actually in Brazil, uh, of all places, in a beautiful island called Florianopolis. And there'd been a screening of a film I made, a kind of similar kind of experimental film, kind of loosely around the life of Yeats. And afterwards, uh, Margaret Kelleher and the Irish ambassador, Brian Glynn, kind of separately had a thought, what if we did something similar for Joyce and for Ulysses? So out of those kind of first very kind of informal chats in, in Brazil came the idea of, of making this you know, kind of filmic response to Ulysses for Molly, you know, and I think one of, one of the things about Molly, you know, while it's obviously a museum of literature and they were also very aware of trying to make it a kind of live place, somewhere where, you know, artists came and did things and things happened, that it wasn't just a kind of retrospective place. So the invitation to, to, to make the film for Molly was was part of that sort of ambition. And also, I mean, apart from a little daunting, as you can imagine, uh, it was lovely to have just a completely open canvas, you know, that I literally had this kind of empty screen in a beautiful room on Stephen's Green. And, you know, film, as you know, so often comes with constraints and, you know, increasingly, uh, I think, in the current environment with constraints. So it was lovely just to be to be allowed make a film without any kind of rules or prescribed demands for a three-act structure or something like that. I suppose when you look at the title of the film, Ulysses Film, your first response might be, oh, it's an adaptation of Ulysses. And I suppose the thing that I found most surprising initially was how present Joyce himself is in the film itself. So I suppose the question is, how much is Ulysses Film a film of Ulysses and how much of it is a film about Ulysses? I mean, I think it's... It's probably a bit of both. I mean, the film itself is, when I started, even in a modest way, decided, you know, this isn't going to attempt to be a film of the book. It's like a response to the book. You know, it's a very abstract piece, you know, which combines kind of images and music and text and voice from the book in a, in a very abstract way. But I suppose it's kind of like my personal kind of distillation of the book, which hopefully maybe just inspires people to read it or pick it up or dive into it rather than it's it's certainly not about the book or Joyce in any kind of literal sort of documentary way of course but but you're absolutely right Joyce is very much a presence in it you know I suppose when I started you know naturally I read the book you know a couple of times and then I started to um, kind of walk the streets of Dublin and you know, one of the things that I've I've said about the film is is I've always been attracted to the idea of, you know, of the past, the present, and possibly the future coexisting. The line between what went before and what is now is is not a clear one. And and of course Ulysses does that brilliantly because mm-hmm. you can walk the streets in the book, and of course they've changed, but yet you have echoes of the past, you've echoes of the ghosts, you can imagine both the real James Joyce walk in those streets that many of us walk. Um, But also, I always like the idea that the line between the imaginary and the real is not that fixed. Mm -hmm. And while you can also imagine Joyce walking down Clare Street, and you can also imagine Bloom or Stephen Dedalus, you know, these fictional figures as well. Mm -hmm. So I suppose one of the things I was trying to get was that sense of all that sort of coexisting, you know, and and it seemed to me when I read the book, and you can read it in a million ways, but it seemed to me that the theme of ghosts of the past uh, seemed very present in it. And, Mm -hmm. 
you know, and that seemed particularly appropriate because Molly, of course, is set in Newman House, which was, you know, the old UCD where Joyce attended. I remember when I went to visit the site of museum initially, there's a, a very famous kind of majestic tree in the back garden, which is still there today. And there's a photo of Joyce on his graduation from UCD taken under that tree. And, you know, so even within the museum itself, there's a sense of the past and the present coexisting. You mentioned it briefly already about the, the actual space, the room that you have in the museum to show the film. How did the idea of a confined museum space fit into how you visualised and how you constructed the film? It, it, it was challenging in one way, you know, and, and indeed recently before the lockdown, there was a screening in the IFI. And it, of course, the filmmaker, it's lovely to sit in a cinema like IFI One and, and watch the film in complete silence with an audience beautifully projected. But I was aware that this, that even now the film, you know, has its own dedicated room, very beautiful room. I was aware, too, that people who go to a museum flit in and out. And, and that's, of course, a challenge. And, you know, the book itself, as, as you probably know, is in 18 episodes. So I decided that, you know, we'd, we'd structure the film in these kind of 18 episodes, you know, short, two, three, four minutes long, and that that would at least give any viewer a potential kind of map through the book, even though the rest of the film is very abstract. So that, you know, the film runs in a loop in Molly mm -hmm. and, you know, runs continually. So I was very aware that some people would look in and, and watch 30 seconds and go, oh, this isn't for me. Uh, and some people might, as, as they have actually, sat down and watched it all. So, you know, the intention was to make it in such a way that even if you watched a couple of seconds or, or maybe watched one episode, that they would stand alone, almost like little, little short films, so mm -hmm. that you would at least get something out of it, even if you saw one image through the door. Now, occasionally, like a filmmaker, you know, despite the, the fact that it's such a beautiful building, you know, I would be in there to check something and I'd see somebody outside in the hallway chatting, and, you know, or somebody saying, uh, well, we go for coffee, you know, and you've got, yeah, you got, you got to shut up and listen, you know, and you're, you're missing this. And, but of course, that's not the environment of a museum. So in a way, we were trying to do something that would work, you know, in a cinema. And I, th I think it does, but also would work as something that you can just drop into. The visuals in the film are breathtaking. I think what's really interesting is that it runs the gamut from you have images of items at a molecular level, but then you have an image of the galaxy. And I was just wondering, did you have a very clear sense of everything in between or was it a process that kind of evolved as you were making the film? It very much evolved. You know, I'd be a great believer in instinct to a degree. And, you know, there is so much scholarship uh, around Ulysses, you know, that you could really get lost in, you know, kind of academic minutiae. And, mm -hmm. and I knew that I just wanted to kind of respond to this visually. And what I used, I mean, often when I make any film, I would kind of make a kind of map or a chart, you know, that I'd stick on the wall and I'd put in different things. And, and, and that map sort of becomes some vague structure of the film. And of course, that's exactly what Joyce did when he was writing Ulysses. He had these kind of schemas that for each episode there was a you know a mythical theme and there was a color and there was a sound and there was an organ of the body and there was so I kind of followed in a very abstract way I followed Joyce's schema but then just responded it kind of instinctively you know that that when I was filming some things would just strike me you know I, 
I didn't over intellectualize it. Yeah. I realized too that I needed to get over any residual reverence I had for the book and just trust my instincts and not be too reverent to it. And, and although every image in the film does have some resonance of something in the book, there's nothing kind of spurious there. The actual images, I, I tried to just respond to them as, as visual images. You know, for example, you know, I went to the most of Joyce's manuscripts are held either in the Rosenbach Institute in Philadelphia, amazing place, or in the library of Buffalo University in upstate New York. And I went there and saw all Joyce's notebooks and his manuscripts and handwritten letters and memorabilia, which was extraordinary in, in a sense to be kind of in the presence of them. But also they're very visual, uh, a bit like, you know, when I saw Yeats's notebooks in the National Library, you know, they're extraordinarily visual. And, and Joyce, when he was drafting, redrafting, you know, he had a whole kind of color coding thing. And so I began to be drawn to these documents that have been the, the source of huge academic scholarship. But obviously that wasn't my bag and I didn't even have the, the, the learning to comprehend all that. But I began to look at them as, fish, as visual objects, you know, and, and try and see the visual beauty in these notebooks and memorabilia. And, you know, and of course I was also conscious, as you'll be, is that, you know, Joyce had a real interest in cinema. And of course there would be an argument you know, had Joyce existed in another era, he might have been drawn more to film than to, to literature. So I, I tried to just kind of interpret it visually, but mostly it was kind of instinctive. What I love about particularly, and you've just mentioned there about the, the, the various notebooks and the journals, is that there's close-ups in the film of, you know, leather-bound books, and particularly at, towards the start, there's kind of newspapers that are, are dirty and soiled. And instead of building an expansive set, those close-ups are really evocative of the period where the, the book is set and when it would have been published. That's a, a good observation. And, you know, one of the things was, you know, the film didn't have a huge budget. And, you know, sometimes that's, that, that's a liberation. Mm -hmm. because it forced me to to look at things and try and see we don't see what's in front of us you know and and that I think visual artists you know not filmmakers per se but you know say somebody like Dorothy Cross who is a pure visual artist in the past knowing Dorothy a little and working with her a little I think those visual artists have a way of looking literally looking at things and objects in a liberating way they look at it in terms of uh, in terms of color, in terms of light, in terms of without any reference to scale that you mentioned. And so I suppose I was trying to kind of approach it like that, that we could, you know, and sometimes the limitations of budget force you to do that mm -hmm. and, and to look at things and see, well, where is the visual landscape in this thing, even though it might be just a piece of paper on the floor? The other side to the film, aside from the visuals, is the incredible sound design and the audio element of it. Tell us a little bit about your approach on that, because listening to it on headphones when you're watching the film, it's just an incredible experience. Good. Well, no, thanks, uh, Stephen. I'm glad to hear that. I mean, it was, you know, sound, of course, and music was hugely important to Joyce. And, uh, you know, the book is awash with that. So, I mean, I suppose what I did initially was I gathered, first of all, I gathered a lot of old recordings, old 78s, music that's actually in the in the book but also just sort of found recordings and recordings I made and then 
you know, working with the editor, Bjorn Magilla, who did you know, an amazing job and was a real collaborator on this, as every editor is, you know, we mapped out a kind of a soundscape and then brought in Ray Harmon, the composer, who, 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 of course, wonderful. And, you know, Ray did a very subtle job because I didn't want, there's so much music and fragments of music in the book and in the film, you know, that we didn't want to score in the traditional sense. It was almost like Ray was providing a kind of atmospheric bed. And he brought a whole other level. And then, interestingly, when I thought about, well, how do I mix this? I had done something briefly with Dorothy Cross, who, who I mentioned earlier, and Lisa Hannigan. We had mixed a kind of musical kind of soundscape with a man called Bear Quinn, who is a music producer, mixer, works with people like Lisa Hannigan, obviously, and the villagers, and, and lots of kind of people in the music area. Dorothy had done this kind of abstract soundscape and I was quite struck by Bear, you know, how he dealt with voice and music and, and how he played with that. And then I asked him, would he mix this as almost a piece of music? You know, Bear hasn't mixed film, that's not what he does. But we kind of took all the pieces, the fragments of voice from Paul Durkin, the bits of music, bits of sound effects, Ray's kind of music. And then I said to Bear, well, kind of mix this mix this like a long music track rather than, you know, a film mix. And, uh, and, and he, you know, he was wonderful. Bear just sort of took to it. Um, you mentioned him there briefly. Did you have Paul Durkin in your mind as narrator from day one? I didn't, no. I mean, I, you know, I know Paul of old and, and have done a film with him and various things. And one of the things when I was kind of feeling my way into the film was, you know, well, what do you do? Do you have... Do you have an actor? Do you have a voiceover? Do you have somebody reading extracts in the book? And somehow, while I could see the, the impetus for doing that, I couldn't quite imagine that an actor would bring a kind of actorish tone to it. And then for a while I went through a thing, well, I won't I'll let the book speak for itself. You know, we'll have phrases from the book graphically on screen, but I won't have a voice because I, I just couldn't see a way of doing that in, in any sort of authentic way. Anyway, because long story short, I was, I was out driving somewhere with Paul and we passed down uh, Sandy Mount, down Strand Road in Sandy Mount. And Paul, you know, said, what are you doing? Well, I'm doing this Ulysses thing. And he got very animated and talked about his love of Ulysses and how Ulysses was kind of a great poem, uh, which is kind of what I had felt as I got into it. You know, that I think the poetic element of it seemed to be strongest for me. And, you know, Paul talked lovingly about himself and Michael Hartnett, the poet, as young writers, you know, in their early 20s, kind of walking around almost pretending to be Joyce. And it just struck me. And of course, I also know from his own readings is that Paul is an extraordinary reader. You know, he has a kind of dramatic facility in his own poems that, you know, runs the gamut from the kind of the most prosaic stuff to the most transcendent stuff. And Ulysses does that, too. So, you know, literally, I thought, well, of course, he, he's the man for the job. And, uh, and Paul, thankfully, you know, very graciously said yes and, and really invested in it. I mean, I think he, you know, he read the book repeatedly. And, and, and really, he was a great, I mean, he was a great collaborator for me, too, because he was, he's so insightful about it and has been in love with the book for so long. And, uh, and then we just, we recorded lots of passages with him, with Kieran Horgan, the sound recordist, and, and 
that was a real joy. You know, I was sort of thinking to myself, I would love if, if one had the time and the energy to get Paul to record the whole book. He's a great. And also, I often think writers are the best readers of writing, not actors. You know, that they seem to have a sensitivity for the rhythm, for the sound, for the word. And Paul certainly brought that. And also a kind of eccentricity, too, you know, that, that, that I like. We've just been talking to the iFi Sneva Flynn about uh, Joyce adaptations on film. Um, outside of your own, what's your what's your favourite Joyce adaptation? Now, to be honest, I kind of steered clear of them a bit. So, you know, I can't say I would have seen various adaptations over the years, but they're kind of distant memories. And when I started this, I thought, well, let me not revisit that. So, so I can't really say with any kind of confidence, but I do, you know, Fanula Flanagan's rendition of of the molly bloom soliloquy is somewhere kind of lodged lodged in most people's psyche but i wouldn't be there wouldn't be one that i could say oh that's it you know and i i think what's what's great is that the book just allows repeat interpretation repeat reading you know and and it's it's funny the process of this i was a little at the very start one of the reasons that i was attracted to doing it was that i was you know, of course, I got that Joyce was a genius, and he is, and that Ulysses is an extraordinary book, and it is. But somehow, personally, I just didn't kind of get it. And I, I think it's because perhaps there's been an over-reverence for Ulysses in particular, and a kind of, either it's kind of impenetrable in a kind of intellectual way, or on the other side of it, it's kind of been hijacked by the kind of amateur dramatics of Bloomsday, you know, that kind of turn it into a bit of a kind of, I don't know, a kind of rollicking Edwardian comedy or something. And an actual fact, when you're drawn to the book, when you read the book, you know, and it's not as impenetrable as it's made out to be. And it certainly seems to be very much a book of its time, of, of now. You know, it seems a very contemporary book, actually. And I, I think people coming to it now from a more contemporary understanding of, of the arts, whether it's film or music or literature, would really be rewarded by it. But, but also it is, you know, Joyce's ambition, and he had huge ambition, to create a universe. I, I think he achieved it. You know, the more I read it, and, you know, I've adapted a few books in the past, and I always think the measure of a book is, sometimes you read a book and you love it, and then you go back to it, and it lessens with each reading. Whereas the, the great books, and, and this obviously is one of them, the more you read it, the more you see. So I suppose that's kind of long-winded way of saying that I think Ulysses can inspire any artist. You could produce a myriad of filmic interpretations of the book, or even just take, take Ulysses out in a day and, and just open a page at random and read a few lines. You know, I think, you know, if you're any way involved in creativity, it's a real kind of kickstart if if you're feeling uh, if you're feeling a bit low on yourself and you're drinking your coffee and you're thinking, God, how will I get through today? Or I haven't got an idea. Or you know, a couple of lines of Ulysses might uh, might be just what you're needing. Um, Alan, what are you working on next? Well, I'm kind of writing a few things at the moment, a few dramas, which which I'm really enjoying and has kind of been a great um, blessing in lockdown to be able to. Uh, filmmakers lives can sometimes be a bit hectic so I've kind of I've liked the this bit of time to be able to retreat a bit and, and actually you know concentrate on on writing and reading and um, so we'll see see where they emerge well in the meantime Ulysses film is available to view at molly.ie 
and will also be available to view uh, in the Museum of Literature Ireland once it reopens following lockdown. Alan Gilsland, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Stephen. Real pleasure. Now this party being private, we soon close the door. A girl from old England, another from Wales, and one who resided Miss Scotland's fair days. We sat down in friendship, we drank of the wine, he spoke of their country, I told them of the rose leek and thistle in Concord was seen. Whence it I is a toast from a Dublin Jackie. Is to old Ireland, her sons and her daughters. Is to Rhiannon, the shamrock. I made a That's all from this week's iFi podcast. My thanks to Snevo Flynn and Alan Gilsonen. We'll be back next week. I hope you'll join us then. The iFi podcast is produced by the Irish Film Institute. The Irish Film Institute is principally funded by the Arts Council. The iFi is a charity. For more information on how to support its work, visit ifi.ie forward slash support. <laughs>